Okay, good evening everyone. Tonight's class is titled, What is Greater? Torah or Mitzvot? How ma- there are laws in the Torah that will never take place. Will never happen. We're guaranteed that parts of the Torah will never take place. Is, is anyone familiar with any of these ideas? Mendel? There is there are mitzvahs in the Torah that we are guaranteed is, are never going to happen. Does this have to do with Beit HaMikdash? No, the Beit HaMikdash, Baruch Hashem existed and we're guaranteed it will happen again. <laughs> Yehuda, what are we guaranteed will never happen? <laughs> we won't, there, there, okay. I, I'd like to look in your handout. Please look at number two. Liz, could you please read number two? I would not. To love the Lord your God, to listen to His voice. So the second number two, I'm sorry. The second number two. You yeah. said that. Yeah. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, there, there never has been a stubborn and rebellious son, and never will be. Why then was the law written? That you may study it and receive reward. Very good. The Gemara in Sanhedrin, Ayin Aleph Amr Aleph, says that the halach of a ben soira or moira. A stubborn and rebellious son. A, son, a boy who eats a certain amount of wine and meat, stealing the money from his parents. So the Torah law says that he has to die. This law will never, such a child will never exist. In a position where someone will, there will be witnesses and they will go to base and etc. Similarly, the same Talmud, the same section continues that there's another mitzvah. With a Zakin Mamre, an elder, a rebellious elder, these two halachot were guaranteed are never going to happen. So why does the Torah, if we could say, waste our time teaching us this mitzvah? Let's have 611 mitzvahs, so it would sound a lot better. Why 613? Why? Now that sounds good, so... 613, it's nice, poetic. <laughs> so obviously, obviously the Torah is not about laws. The Torah is not about history. Obviously, the fact that the Torah requires us to learn things that will never happen is within itself a proof that the Torah is not law. The Torah is not a story. The Torah is God itself. As we mentioned before with the Talmud and Tractate Shabbos says that the first word of the Ten Commandments, Anochi, is an acronym for Ani, Nafshi, Kisavis, Yehavis, that God put Himself inside of the Torah. So God is within the Torah itself. Yeah, please. What does God need to say it since we already know God is in everything? You're you're saying why does God need so many mitzvahs? No. The last sentence you said. Yes, yes. With the Anochi. Yes. Why is that um, specified since we already know God? If God is in everything, why are you telling me God's in the Torah? Right. Great question. In the Torah, God is revealed. In a complete, in his essence, is within every aspect of the Torah. God is con- he's within everything, but oftentimes very concealed. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, when we're going to learn the Torah, we become one with it. That means we're, we're becoming one with God. And as we l- understand this idea of becoming one with God when we learn the Torah, we'll now understand something 
that the Talmud shares with us in Tractate Kiddushin. And that is, that if you see a Torah scholar, the Torah requires you to stand up. Why do you need to stand up if you see a Torah scholar? If the Torah scholar is studying Torah, so then you should stand up. When the Ark is open and the Torah is... So then we should stand up. But when you see a Torah scholar, he's not learning Torah now. What are you standing up for? Out of respect. But respect for what? For the Torah, he's not studying Torah now. So he does study Res- Torah. He does. So when he's studying, we stand up for him. Maybe he's thinking about the Torah. Ah. And that's what we're going to say now. That someone who learns Torah, he is a walking Torah. And therefore, we have to stand up for him. Because there's the essence of God. uh, Within his mind is the Torah. And within that Torah, in his mind, is God. That means God's essence. The Torah is clearly within this person. This person is a walking Torah. Let's see this now inside chapter 5. And chapter 5 really is we're going to spend the entire chapter 5 looking at one line that was mentioned earlier in chapter 4. So if before we start chapter 5, those with the Tanya, please turn back to chapter 4 and look at the top line on page 16. Towards the top it says, no thought can apprehend him at all. This is in the fifth line of chapter, of chapter 4, page 16. No thought can apprehend him at, at all. A quote from Eliyahu Hanavi, Elijah the prophet. Now when we talk about understanding something, we don't call it apprehending. We call it understanding. Or, the, or we could say that we know something. Either we know or we understand, but we never hear the expression, oh, I apprehended that concept. That's, apprehend is a very weird word. Why is Elio saying that no thought can apprehend God? He's saying no thought, no thought will know God or no thought will understand God. Why apprehend? And this is the focus of chapter 5. Let's see it inside. Chapter 5, Perikei, in your Tanya, page 19, or in the handout. Let us explain further and fully elucidate the expression tefisa, apprehension. In the words of Elijah Eliyahu the Hanavi, no thought can apprehend thee. Eliyahu Hanavi said that no thought can apprehend Hashem, leis machashavot tefisa beiklal. No thought can apprehend God. Again, why is he using this funny word? Why is Eliyahu using the idea that no thought can apprehend? Now, when an intellect conceives and comprehends a concept, conceives is which of the tenths of he wrote? Chachma wisdom, when you the conceiving an idea, and you take that I, you take that flash of wisdom and you comprehend it. You now have the second of the ten. You have the comprehension with its intellectual faculties. So when your mind goes ahead and fully understands something, this intellect grasps the concept and encompasses it. So when we learn something, we don't, not not only do we know it, not only do we understand it, we actually grab a hold of it. This concept is in turn grasped, enveloped and enclosed within that intellect which conceived and comprehended it. We all know when we learn something, 
we got it. How many, are you familiar, you ever heard someone say they got it regarding something intellectual? They got it means that they, it's theirs, they own that idea. That's much more than knowing, much more than understanding. You got it. You've heard the expression, Dr. Yosef? You got it. So our mind fully encompasses the idea of learning. And now we're going to see a step further. Not only does our mind fully encircle the godly idea within us, at the same time, our mind is fully encircled by the Torah we're learning. The mind, for its part, is also closed in the concept at the time it comprehends and grasps within it the intellect. That means, when, we're, when we learn something, we grab that thing and that thing grabs us. How do we know that? Well, we can't think about two things at the same time. If you want to really know something, you have to focus on that idea. That means that you have given yourself over to that idea. Your mind at that time is fully encompassed by the thought. So again, the thought, we own the thought, and at the time that we're thinking, the thought owns us. The thought is in control. We, have, we can't do anything else aside from focus on that idea. So question. Please. Is apprehend a lesser version, a lesser emphasis than comprehend? Apprehend is the greatest. Comprehend means okay. you understand. Okay. Apprehend means it's yours. You own it. Okay. It's much deeper. We all know that some people could, can multitask. Right? They say women can multitask. I can tell you I cannot multitask. My wife could prove, could uh, further, further agree with that. <coughs> people can multitask, but you can only multitask in speech or in action. You could do two things at once. You could try and talk to two people at once. But you can't think about two things at once. It's impossible. So, going back to the three garments of the soul, which are thought, speech, and action, thought being the highest, when we think about something, that's it, we can only think about one. And now, let's give an example. For example, when a person understands and comprehends fully and clearly, a key factor here, remember, we don't grasp anything, we don't own it, if it's not full and clear. So when a person understands and comprehends something fully and clearly, any halacha law in the Mishnah or Gemara, his intellect grasps and encompasses it. Well, if you, now if you, if you understand the halacha, you own that halacha. You completely surround it. And at the same time, your mind is enclosed in it. That halacha owns you while, while you're thinking about it. So now, let's talk about our connection with Hashem. Consequently, as the particular halacha is the wisdom and will of God, for it, the Torah is Hashem's wisdom, it's His will. So if you say you got the halacha, that means you got God. And if we say that the essence of God is in the Torah, that means when you understand the halacha, you have got, you've got it. You've got it, what is it? The essence of Hashem. There is nothing greater in the world. Let me quote, because these are amazing words, very often quoted. We'll learn it soon. 
This is a wonderful union, union like which there is no other. The union of learning Torah has no parallel to anything in this world. This idea of getting Hashem, completely becoming one with Him, this union, there is no other union like this in the world. Because you own Hashem and Hashem owns you. That's the greatest connection possible. And this connection is by any type of Torah learning. And that's what we're going to say now. Do you know Hashem talks about liars? The Torah talk has every law within it. Even what happens if someone lied. How they need us to make an oath, etc. Hashem has allowed His essence into low things. Truly low things. Corrupt actions. And nonetheless, when we learn about those corrupt actions, not when we learn about people doing them, when we learn about the Torah, we are connecting with the essence of Hashem. And there is no greater union like that connection. Let's see that inside. Consequently, as a particular halach is a wisdom and will of God, for it was His will that when, for example... Reuven pleads in one way and Shimon in another. That means you have an argument. Reuven is saying that uh, Shimon owes me $100. Shimon says, no way, I only owe you 50 So then the Torah says the verdict as between them shall be thus and thus when the Torah comes and says, oh, you say uh, that Shimon owes you 100 but Shimon only admits to 50 So the Torah law in that case is Anyone familiar with the Torah law in this case is? 75? The Torah law is If you admit half, then Mr. Schwartz, what's the continuation? Yeah, then you, you owe the guy the whole thing because you admitted that you owe him. If, if you would have said, I owe you no money, then it's different. But since you said that I owe you half of it, then we assume the guy is right and you owe him the whole thing. Thank you. It's hard to look someone in the eye and lie completely. It's not so hard to lie halfway. So if someone says, you owe me a dollar, and the person responds, I don't owe you a penny, we say, look. But if someone says, oh, it's only 50 cents, so then the Torah is already like, hey, 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 there's something going on, you need to swear. <laughs> so when you learn this law, where someone is lying in this case, Reuven says, you owe me a hundred dollars. Shimon says, only 50. There's a lie happening. Nonetheless. And even should such a litigation never have occurred, and like we, sh- like we discussed in number two, how there are certain Torah laws that never happen, like the rebellious son, nor would it ever present itself for judgment in connection with such disputes and claims, even if these stories will never happen. Th- nevertheless, since it has been the will and wisdom of the Holy One, blessed be He, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that in the event of a pe- person pleading this way and the other litigant pleading that way, the verdict shall be such and such. Meaning, whether this story will ever happen, but because Hashem in His wisdom has said, if such and such would happen, this will be the halacha. Here we go. Now therefore, when a person knows and comprehends with his intellect such a verdict, in accordance with the law, as it is set out in the Mishnah, Gemara, or post-Gim, or in the Halacha. Again, this will never happen. But because you learned it, he has thus comprehended, grasped, and encompassed within his intellect 
the will and wisdom of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Holy One, blessed be He, whom no thought can grasp, nor His will and wisdom. Hashem, no one could grab Hashem. Hashem is way above us. Except when they are closed in the laws that have been set out, that have been set out for us. Like we learned, like we discussed in the past few weeks. There's no chance to understand Hashem. We're mortal human beings. The mere, the mere question, why, why, why can't I understand God, is a reflection of a lack of understanding that Hashem is not human. How do you want to understand Hashem? So the only way we could understand Hashem is because Hashem put Himself in the Torah, as we discussed, like water. We gave the analogy, the Rabbi Shneur gave the analogy that water is on top, and it's the same thing on the bottom. Hashem has put His essence in the Torah. So the only method possible to truly grasp and get Hashem is through the Torah. <coughs> and not only do we get Hashem, but simultaneously the intellect is also closed in them, the divine will and wisdom. At the moment that you're thinking, remember, you can't think about anything else, and the thought owns you. That means the godliness is owning you. What's, what's greater than that? To be able to say that Hashem truly owns every part of you at the time that you're learning Torah. Rabbi? Please, Gershon. Um, what does it mean, somewhere in here when we were talking about understanding the verdict when two people flee one way? Please, yes. Then you say, but it'll never happen. What, where is that? What does that mean? Um, Mendel, can you, you show Gershon footnote number, hand, uh, number two? Oh, yeah. Is that from the, there's never been a stubborn? Yes, yes. That's a quote from the Talmud. Do you see what the Talmud says? There has never been a stubborn and rebellious son, which is one of the 613 mitzvot. And never will be. That means the Talmud clearly tells us that some of the 613 mitzvot will never oh, happen. Gotcha. Got it? So before we go on, let's summarize, and then I want to look in these footnotes, and they're all very rich. So in summary, we, in summary, we have, the best summary actually will be to read the next paragraph of Tanya. Like I said, this is the paragraph that lays it all out. It's only two and a half lines. When we learn Torah, this is a wonderful union, like which there is no other, and which has no parallel anywhere in the material world whereby complete oneness and unity from every side and angle could be attained. This union with Hashem, there is no parallel. When we learn Torah, we, God Hashem, and Hashem has us. So when the text that was sent out said, what is greater, Torah or mitzvot? What's the answer? Torah. Mitzvot, we're touching Hashem, we're drawing Hashem down into this world, but we're not creating that union with Hashem, like which there is no other. Now, now I do need to clarify. Of course, Torah and mitzvot are equal. I'm only pointing out one detail within Torah and mitzvot. I'm saying this aspect of the unity of God, Torah is much greater. So, Rabbi, Please. So what it means, like in, in Davening, like with the common Torah, that's one of the meanings, yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, when, when we discuss the greatness of the Torah, Wait, please. So, but what about when somebody says that the way to find God is by doing this, folks? 
the, the Mishnah says that already. The Mishnah says that Hamaisa Hua Iker. The main thing is action. And learning Torah is to a certain extent secondary. Why? Because so over here we have a contradiction. And a great question, Melissa. In chapter 5 we're saying the greatest thing is to learn Torah. Yet in chapter 4 we said the greatest thing was to do mitzvot. In chapter 4 we said that if you want to draw down God into this world we have to do the 613 mitzvot. Each mitzvah has another light we shared and how when we do mitzvot we're encompassing all the 613 parts of our body. So how do we have this contradiction? On the one hand What does this mean? Let's leave that for, I'll, I'll answer it at the end of the class. Good question. <laughs> so, how do we have this? In chapter 4 we said the greatest thing is mitzvot, and in chapter 5 we're saying the greatest thing is Torah. <coughs> Anyone? What's the answer, Maisha Mendel? You have to do it all. Fair enough, no but way no way out. <laughs> I can't argue with my wife. You can't work more effectively if you don't. Commit to the actions, and the actions are doing the mitzvot. Why? Why? Why can't you learn Torah without mitzvot? I, I know people that know Torah much better than me, and unfortunately, are not so That's committed. Exactly why? Because they're not practicing. But they know the Torah very well. Why can't you learn Torah without mitzvot? Then you're not really learning the Torah in, in, in depth. Why? I know people that know Torah in depth. But they haven't learned Torah if they're not doing mitzvah. Why? Please. I definitely have to agree with the rabbi on, on his point there. But I don't know if this answers it, but I know it says in the Talmud that we get rewarded for our good intentions, but we, but we don't necessarily... I have a comment when it's going like, our, like our, our good thoughts, if you have like a thought towards doing mitzvah and you really intend to do it, but it doesn't quite work out, right, right? You're, you're rewarded for that, but if you have like a really bad, like if you really contemplate, you know, murdering someone, but you don't go through with it, you're not like getting punished the same way for like murdering them, as in like if you had this really good intention. I'm not quite sure if that... Well, that's a good point. You know, the, the ultimate answer is it depends if we're selfish or not. Our greatest experience will be through the Torah. That we'll have this complete unity with God. The world's greatest experience will be if we do mitzvot. Like we discussed last week. Gan Eden is an awesome experience. Being in the Garden of Eden and being able to have pleasure from God, godliness is awesome. But nonetheless, that's not what God wants from us. He wants for us to be in this world and do. And the same thing here. Learning Torah creates this union like no other. But that's not the ultimate mission of what that God wants from us. So if we're selfish, we may focus on learning Torah. But if we're not selfish, if, we're, if we care about the world, we care about our fellow friend, we care about what God wants, then we're going to do mitzvot, because that's what God wants. You're learning Torah, you're, you're willed to do the mitzvot. Right. You know, if you're learning Torah, you're not doing what God wants. This will be exactly like that famous story we mentioned about do you like fish or do you hate fish? If you like fish, you wouldn't kill them, right? Mm -hmm. The same thing here. 
Do you like God or do you like yourself? If you like yourself, only learn Torah. If you, like, if you care about God, then do Torah and mitzvot. So over here we're saying, yes, that the greatest unity ever can only be accomplished through Torah. Because we got God. Could we, could we hold it till the end, or, or is it for now? <laughs> All due respect, I think it might be a good idea to interject it here. First of all, even if we don't understand but we hear the Torah read, we gain a degree of insight thereby. But what it boils down to is an adequate understanding of the difference between comprehension and apprehension. Anybody can comprehend with diligence and guidance the Torah. It's not, it's not huge. It's written so that a person can comprehend it. What requires to be gone beyond is the apprehension that is taking it in and making it part of oneself. I can understand it, but I may not believe it. I can understand it, but I may not make it a part of myself. It is that critical word of apprehension, to apprehend, to go over and incorporate. That's the critical issue. And that's the difference, if I may respectfully suggest, between merely the study of Torah and, in fact, absorbing it. Got it. Thank you. You know, the Talmud in Tractate Shabbos 88b shares with us something that is, was never seen before. Shares with us a story in heaven. Moses goes to heaven to get the Torah. And the angels look at God and they start screaming. And they say, Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi said, footnote number one in your Tanya, in your handout again, number one. Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi also said, When Moses ascended on high, the ministering angels spoke before the Holy One, blessed be He, and they said, Sovereign of the universe, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, what business has one born of woman amongst us? A human being? What a laughing joke! A human being is up here on heaven, in heaven? Story from the Talmud. He has come to receive the Torah, answered God. So the angels turn to God and they say, and these are all quotes from, the, from Psalms actually. That they say, That secret treasure, which has been hidden by thee for 974 generations before the world was created. The Talmud shares with us that for 2,000 years before the world was created, the world existed 2,000 years prior to the world. Sorry, the Torah existed 2,000 years prior to the world. So the angels say, this, this Torah that has existed for so long, before the world was even created, you want to give to flesh and blood? You know, on a side note, there's a famous question. I'll leave it to you to look in the Talmud. I thought time was created with the world. So how do we have 2,000 years before time? That any, everyone could call Dr. Yosef for the answer after the class. <laughs> so, so, uh, but nonetheless, the angels turn to God and they say, you're giving the Torah your most precious treasure to the humans? So what does Hashem say? 
Hashem turns to Moshe, and Hashem says, Moshe, you answer the question. Return them an answer. So Moshe, I, I didn't put the whole Talmud, Moshe is shit, he says, angels are going to kill me. So Hashem says, don't worry, you hold on to my chair and respond, no one's going to hurt you. And so Moshe turns to the angels, I mean, try and imagine this scene. Moshe had been the, the most humble of all men. He didn't have a big ego, he wasn't looking at the angels all tough. It was quite a scary experience. He turns to the angels and he says, he then spoke before him. Moshe is talking before Hashem. He says, Hashem, Ribonu Shalolam, Sovereign of the Universe. The Torah which you, gave, which you have given me, what is written within it? I am the Lord your God which brought you out of Egypt. So he turns to the angels. He says, did you go down to Egypt? Were you enslaved to Paro? Why should the Torah be yours? And I cut it out, but again, Moshe goes through each one of the Ten Commandments. He says, one second, you have a father and mother that you need to respect? He says, did you ever want to kill someone? You ever wanted to steal? You ever had an interest in, in you were ever jealous? The, the, Torah, the Torah has no connection to you. And straight away, they conceded, the angels conceded to Hashem, and as the Pasuk says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name, etc. And a fascinating story. Tremendous discussion about this story in many commentators. Like, well, what is this story? The Moshe, but nonetheless, let's look at the words of the angels to understand how lucky we are to learn Torah. When we open up the Torah, anything we're learning, we're, learning, we're right now in a Torah class. When we learn the Torah, let us know that the angels in heaven are jealous of us. And they turn to Hashem and they say, what, Are you crazy? Hashem, you're giving up the Torah to the humans? The Torah is your most precious object. There is nothing in the world like it. You created it 2,000 years before the world. You're giving this to the humans. And Hashem said yes. So when we talk about the greatness of the Torah, when we talk about our unity with Hashem in the Torah, the angels are jealous of us. And let us not remember that those, those that have passed on are also jealous. Mm. And like we mentioned last week, that is why when we go to a cemetery, we put in our tzitzis. We don't want to embarrass the dead. Everyone is jealous of us aside for ourselves. Oftentimes we have to convince ourselves. Let us, not, let us not have to convince ourselves. Let us recognize that we are the luckiest people in the universe. Right? The people in Ganadin are jealous. The angels in heaven are jealous. <coughs> and we have this Torah, we could become one with God. And we mentioned that we need to learn Torah whether or not, we whether or not it's ever going to happen. This is a very big debate amongst a lot of the different, um, a lot of the different yeshivas. Different yeshivas around the world. Why? Because some of them say, let us not learn about the Beit HaMikdash, the Temple. It's not applicable right now. Let us not learn the laws of giving from your crop to the Levi when you're outside of Israel. It only applies in Israel. This is a major controversy still today. Do we need to learn the laws that are not applicable today? We're wasting our time. Let us focus on Pesach, on Hanukkah, on Purim. Let us focus on the laws of how we dress, how we eat Shabbos. But let us not spend a minute learning something that is not applicable. Well, the answer is clearly written out 
in the Code of Jewish Law in the Shulchan Aruch. And the answer is written when it discusses the obligation of a, of a father to his son. If today, today we have the idea of a public school system. You know, of course, unfortunately, the Jewish world, we, we don't yet have a, a free Jewish school. We wish, right? We wish we had that. But, but when we talk about the public school system, so the government has taken responsibility if, for the school system. Would that be correct? The government has taken responsibility. The Torah tells us that no, every father is responsible for his son. As we're told, parents have to think about their child's education every single day for a half hour. Just like it's a mitzvah. A half hour. At least a half hour. Thank you for correcting me. <laughs> Just like we have a mitzvah to put on tefillin, and no one ever misses a day of tefillin, so too we have an obligation to think about the education of our children for a half hour a day. Imagine what would happen if we did that. And I'm talking for myself. I wish I could have that half hour. And not I wish I could. I'm, I'm sure I could. I, I wish I was able to... Uh, Is it per kid, Rabbi, or can you split it up? <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I certainly yeah. hope it's yeah. per family. A father is obligated to teach his son. If he can't teach his son, he's obligated to pay for education. Right. He's obligated to pay, and if he doesn't pay... The local court of Jewish law, the based in, should go to his house, take out a painting from his house and sell it. And hire a malamid, hire a teacher with that money. We, it's a, the Jewish court has an obligation to make sure that every child has a Jewish education, but their obligation starts with the father. Meaning, the reason I say that these, these words is because, of course, unfortunately, if there's an orphan, etc., that falls on the community to... to you know, take care of him. But a normal child, the parents are responsible, specifically actually the father, the mother does not have a command to teach the child Torah. The father has the command, we say this every day in Shema, we say, um, uh, the Thou shalt teach them diligently. Right. You should teach them, and it's talking about the father. So the father, the father has the mitzvah, he must. And if he doesn't, we, like I said, we take from him. But, what is the father responsible for? In other words, at what point could the father say, this is not my responsibility? At what point could the father say, you're a great teacher, but I'm only paying you until here? And let's look inside. We're now in footnote number three. If a person, again, this is from the Code of Jewish Law. If a person has adequate financial means and does not want to hire a teacher for his son, he should be compelled to do, throw, to do so through all kinds of methods. The rational, the rationale, is that a father is obligated by scriptural law to teach his son himself, or to find a teacher to teach him the entire Torah. A father has an obligation to teach his son the entire Torah. This obligation encompasses the Torah, the prophets, and scriptures, Torah, Nevi'im, Ksuvim, all of the conclusive legal rulings of the entire Torah, the Midinese to know all halacha, with their motivating principles, understand the reasoning behind it, and now focus with me here for a second, 
The above obligation includes even mitzvot which are not observed in the present era. Clear. Clear Torah law that the obligation of a father to, to a son, the permissibility for the Betin to go into someone's house and take and, and, and ransom, and not ransom, and, and sell something to provide an education to his son applies even to those laws that are not applicable today. Why? Because Torah is not about law. Torah is about God. God, it's about connecting with God. That is why we, we, we have mitzvot that will never happen. Because it's not about whether they'll happen or not. It's about connecting with Hashem. It's about uniting with Hashem. And now we could look at footnote number four. I mentioned that earlier in understanding. Sure, the father is okay. He is obligated to hire a teacher. teacher. And even if the father is knowledgeable, but he feels that he doesn't have time, that's okay. The father is responsible to make sure his son gets educated. So does the community have the obligation to make school affordable to everybody? That's a good question. Yes. No, like in America we have a public school system, so ideally what you're saying is that in the case of there being some sort of Jewish state, then there is an obligation for them to offer the Torah education to every child. Correct. Correct. <laughs> If, if I could say this, and this is not coming from knowledge, I could be making a mistake, but from my limited knowledge, I would suggest that perhaps the Torah law is that a school has to know the finances of a family and charge them accordingly. In other words, the idea of free school would not perhaps be appropriate. Again, this is, um, this is not at all, I'm not telling you... Because if school is free, then they're not paying for it, then they might not be... A father is responsible for his son's education. That, and part of that is to pay for his son's education. We all know that when we pay for something, it means a lot more to us. You know, the Rebbe, he told us, he said, do not give out anything for free. Charge a dollar. If you, give out a, a, if you give someone on, on walking on the street, say, are you Jewish? He says, yes. And you give them free menorah, they may not light it. You charge them one dollar, you have a 50% chance more they're going to light it. They paid for it. They may as well use it. You know? so, so perhaps, perhaps it would come out that a father should pay for his son's education, but certainly the community is obligated to help the father if need be, 100%. Now we're up to footnote number four. Number four, it is a, and this is a quote again from Halacha, from the quote of, from the Kitra Shulchan Aruch. It is a positive commandment to stand up before a Torah stage who is, who is distinguished in his Torah learning, even if he is not old in years and not a rabbi. You could be 13 years old. If you are knowledgeable, and there are de definitions of what specific, what you need to know in order to... Of Liadi. Yeah. Correct. He was very young, and everybody... Yes, Reb Shneir Zalman, by his bar mitzvah, he put everyone... He, he, the, the expressions he made, everyone fall out of their chair. Mm -hmm. he, he, he gave a, a, a pilpul, a Dvar Torah, and it, the, yeah, it says the, the people lost their hands and feet, an expression from the Torah. Mm. They, they were completely taken away. Yes, so a, a Torah scholar, no matter how old, you need to stand up for. By the way, how... how the Torah says you need to stand up for two people, an older person and a Torah scholar. H how old is, a, is an old person, according to the Torah? Four. I believe six. Seventy. Seventy. The Torah says 
Jew, non-Jew, ignorant, smart, a 70-year-old, we need to stand up for. Stand up. Even a non-Jew rabbi? There is a custom to, to even a, even a non-Jew. Interesting. There's a blessing for recognizing somebody who is a chacham who isn't Jewish. It's a separate blessing. No, the rabbi didn't say a chacham who's not Jewish. The rabbi said an old person who's not Jewish. Right. Oh, everyone. <laughs> so, so we should stand up for someone 70 and older, and that is, the Torah says, because of their experience of life, a 70-year-old cannot be not smart. A 70-year-old must, must be smart. Their life experience itself makes them smart. But then we also need to stand up for, again, any age Torah scholar, and that is because, and with this we'll be able to summarize everything we've learned. Torah is God. And when we learn Torah, we unite with Hashem. And Hashem unites with us. And therefore, when we see a Torah scholar, even when he is not studying Torah, he is a Sefer Torah. He may be a covered Sefer Torah, we stand up even, but he is a Sefer Torah, and we need to stand up for him. Do Torah scholars need to stand up for other Torah scholars? I'll share with you a quick story. The Rebbe's teacher was named Reb Zalman Velenkin. He taught the Rebbe when he was a young child. I'm not exactly sure. Maybe he taught him the Aleph Beis, the Chumash. I'm, I'm not sure exactly the details. And when the Rebbe became Rebbe in 1951, so his teacher, Reb Zalman Velenkin, would come at times to Farbrengen's. And now there was a problem. Because Rabbi Velenkin would stand up for the Rebbe, and the Rebbe would stand up for Rabbi Velenkin. <laughs> so Rabbi Velenkin, Rabbi Velenkin didn't come to Fabringens anymore. That was his, that was his, he, or he wouldn't, he just didn't know how to deal with it. But anyways, yes, there are specific laws who stands up for who.